Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that you would mold us, that you would teach us, that you would help us to receive more of your love and share it in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. I, as I start with that, I think about how complicated sometimes family can be. And certainly part of that process, I think, is, is how complicated growing up can be, going from a child to an adult. One of those complicated things in that department for me was dealing with the fact and coming to own and recognize and label that I had one set of grandparents that were racists. They were. And it's complicated because they loved me. They did great things for me. They did great things for lots of people. They did all these different things, but I can put a label on that. I have no problem labeling some of the things I heard and saw and witnessed. They were racists. And it's a hard thing is to put that in its right place and, and kind of deal with that. I want to say that today um, is a different kind of day. I have a little trepidation about preaching today, but with our first reading we had today from Galatians 3, and it includes verse 28, which I'm going to be focusing in on, and with our second ever federal holiday for Juneteenth, I really felt like God was saying we need to talk about race today. So that's where I'm going, and I'm going to tell you straight up where we're going on how this is going to map out, because um, I come with it with some fear. So I'm going to start out today by saying a few words about why this is uncomfortable for me to speak. I'm just going to put that on the table. And then I want to turn and focus on this passage from Galatians 3. I want to open it up just a little bit more to look at the topic with, with at least one other passage. And then I ultimately want to come in to, to talking about some ideas and topics for us to think about in this area. And my hope, not you have to do it today at lunch because it's Father's Day, but my hope is that at a meal this week, you will have a conversation about this. My hope is that this will be an opportunity this week for us to th examine our conscience on some of these topics and just have further thoughts and further prayers about it. That's where I'm going to go today and what, what we want to do. And, and I start by saying that it's a bit of a topic that I really don't want to do. And it's one that is that I enter with some trepidation for a number of reasons. One, last summer, I gave a 40-minute talk on cancel culture. And so part of me is sweating. Am I going to say the wrong thing? Will I get canceled in all kinds of different ways? <laughs> um, there's all the complications, too, of people who's, who frankly will say that a white man should not speak on this. That's part of the complication that enters in here. Forget that I've lived as an exchange student in another culture where things were flipped the other way. Forget that I lived with an exchange student who lived with me, who I was a, I called brother then, I called brother now, but let me assure you back in the day in small town Texas, when his first name was Muhammad, I don't have to fill in a lot of the pieces about some of the things I witnessed for my brother. But I'll also say maybe more importantly, I've seen pastors like Lawrence Akers out of the famous Cornerstone Baptist Church in Brooklyn who's saying, look, this topic is too important for people to not speak about it. It's too important of a topic for pulpits to remain silent about this topic. He goes on to say, don't try to ignore it. It's a biblical and culturally relevant issue. Don't throw up your hands and say, well, it's too complicated. Who knows what to say? And so I get that, and that's coming. And he, he's a well-known, obviously, um, African-American pastor with a, with a voice and has done a lot of writing in this area. I also have some trepidation about going to this topic because I know lots of people that are just kind of exhausted on the topic. 
I hear it at work, I hear it in culture, I hear it in magazines, and now I'm going to get it at church. Don't email me, please, because I'm responding in with, because I think God wants us to go to this place and kind of engage it some. And the other reason is, a couple other reasons. One is that it's a complex topic. I know we could sit up here and talk about explicit and implicit bias and structural sin and family systems and corporate guilt. And there are all kinds of ways and different places you could go with this. It's super complicated. I get that. And I guess the final reason why I sort of approach this with some fear is that I know I've got some blind spots and I know I've not had everything right. And so all of that comes together to say, wouldn't it have been easier to talk about the garrison maniac today from Luke 8? But I'm not. We're going to go to Galatians 3 and, and take on this topic. And as we, as we turn, I'll just say that please give me grace. I promise you the things I'm saying are coming from a good place with good intentions and wanting to love and grow. So give me some grace if I step on something or get something wrong. But when we turn to this Galatians 3 passage, let me give some context to it as to what Paul says and where it kind of goes. So Paul, um, in, so, so Peter has has. Peter and Paul have had some conflict, right? So, um, and Peter has had this time where he's been hanging out with these Gentiles. They've had fellowship. They've done all these things. Everything's been good. And then suddenly some of the Jews show up and suddenly Peter sort of backs, backs pedals and rubber bands to a different place, even though he's the one who's had a vision from God about how the gospel is meant to be for the Gentiles. He's had all this image. He has helped at this moment of conversion of Cornelius's family, the whole household, all of that's gone on, but he's sort of backtracked. And so, so there's this conflict and, and they're going after it. And, and of course, the bigger context of Galatians, the whole book in part is dealing with the so-called Judaizers, those who wanted to say, if you were gonna be, a, if you were a Gentile and you're gonna become a Christian, that you were gonna go back and take on all the law. You were gonna get circumcised if you weren't, you were gonna do all this, all these different places, and then you were going to come to Christ. And the part of the book is spitting all that out, you know, getting rid of, rid of all that. And so part of the question that's implicit in, in the first part of our reading today is where it's kind of the question being asked, well, what's the place of the law then? And Paul is going to answer it at the start of it, saying, well, the place of the law is kind of like he's going to make an analogy to this ancient, um, in the culture at the time, there were certain households that had this household servant whose job and responsibility was for the moral welfare of the children. And part of their main, part of their tasks in this were to walk the children to school every morning and walk them home, to take them to the teacher and bring them back. And Paul is saying that's what part of the law was. The law was to be this custodian, this guardian, this disciplinarian who, who took us to the teacher. And now that we have the teacher and the fullness of Christ, the, the law's got a different place. Like it has this role, that's what it was. It helps us to see these things, but takes us there. That's kind of what, what Paul is saying with that. And then he's getting this place where he says, once you get to that place, that's where you're going to find your deep identity. And um, I want to read just the part that he, ta- that he says there. This is from the message translation. So we'll hear it in different words. The first part of that passage says, but now, now you've arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. And 
part of the consequences that flows from that, taking on Christ and getting this identity, is that all the other markers are going to go away. That there's this pr- place that we're brought to this deep unity that's beyond any markers that we've known in society or within culture. So this is the passage I want to focus on, and I'm going to read it now again. This is from Galatians 3.28. Paul says, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. He's saying that um, race is gone, socioeconomic classification's gone, that gender is gone. Like he's going down the biggest ways that people would categorize things of his day. And he's saying these, these are gone. And these were big, you know, they, whether it was right at Paul's time or a little bit later, just to give you an example of, of how these were, like there was a morning prayer said by Jews at the time with the Babylonian prayers that included a prayer thanking God that they were not a Gentile and that they were not a woman. So Paul, to give you an idea of how Paul's saying all that's gone, he's blowing up these huge, big categories of the day and they're gone. All these social constructs where people want to give markers and place things and all of this, gone because of this supreme identity in Christ and the unity that he calls us to, all that's gone. Which then we start, as I said before, there are lots of complexities here, right? Because then people start to raise the question, well, are we all lost in some pool of sameness at this point? Or are we not? And what do we do with that? Are we, so that the social constructs are gone, but we still who we are, how we were made. We still have a God that clearly loves diversity as we look at all the world. How does all that work out? It's, I'll just say that it is, it's complicated that way. I love how the um, local pastor who's internationally famous, if, if you know him or not, um, Tony Evans, who's an African-American who has a church here in town, he wrote a book recently that he titled, and part of the title was uh, Race Kingdom Theology, where he goes into a lot of these things. And part of what he says in the book is the Bible is full of race. In heaven, everybody's going to be the same race they were on earth. He goes on to say that God is not colorblind. He's just not blinded by color. And uh, again, to go to the complexity of it, Tony Evans took heat for this because there were certain people that said, look at what he's saying. You know, like he's still trying to hold on to this and this, but that's part of the complexity. I don't want to get hung up on, the, on this. I want us to keep moving, but I, want, I do want to just sort of footnote how even strong, well-thought-out Christian voices take heat. So you can save your email. I know everybody gets it. Um, but I think about this. Um, when we talk about it, you go back to some of the early ancient writers in the church. Jerome, who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, known in the church for being one of the greatest translators, he talks about this passage. And I love what he says because he says, look, when you take on Christ and you let the ardor of the Holy Spirit reign in you, you glow with a color that everybody has the same color. And he goes on as part of, part of this passage to say, there's one fiery color, and all diversity of race, condition, and body is taken away by such a garment. That when you're clothed by the Holy Spirit that way, that everybody shines in that particular kind of way. And that's, when we think about that passage from Galatians 3.28, there are many, many other verses that we might look at today. I want to give sort of a placeholder and just mention one more verse because I think we can sometimes forget that Jesus was kind of radical in some of these things, right? So I think if we go back and we look at, for example, John 4, 
where Jesus has uh, this moment where he's going to encounter this woman, a uh, Samaritan woman. And if you remember, before you get to this, um, a Jewish man would not talk to a woman, a Jewish woman, in public unless it was a relative or a super close friend. Those were about the only ways that they would do this. And Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman. Now, to remind you, the Samaritans and the Jews had this long-standing feud and conflict between them. There were people who would not travel through that part of the land because they didn't want to even encounter the other, the other race. And Jesus goes right there and he speaks to her. And he not only speaks to her, but ultimately she becomes the hero of one of his stories. So it's all changed. Like you, you need to get like how radical that is. He's made somebody that many people in his um, audience would have seen as somebody to put off on the side. He's made a hero of one of the stories. And so it is that Jesus is blowing up those categories. And, and Paul is saying that in our new identity, these things are gone. Well, I want to pivot here and have you think about those things, but I want to pivot to begin to ask us to think about how do we take some of these things on board? How do we live some of these things out? How do we reflect on some of these things? What do we do with it? And maybe the very first thing for us to look at is to think about and just own that the church has got many things wrong in this department. I'm going to say a few things today, but they've definitely got we, over the years, we've got many things wrong. And, you know, I did my undergrad at Baylor, and occasionally if I needed to needle one of my Southern Baptist friends, I would again say, where did that word Southern come from again? And they'd have to go think about their own painful past. Not that I was throwing rocks. We've all got our stuff. The whole church, has, we have our stuff. But I think about this. I think about one of the greatest abolitionists that ever lived back in the 19th century, Frederick Douglass, um, he gets held up, and appropriately so, in all kinds of ways, but not everybody always talks about his faith, because his faith was one of the dynamic parts of who he was and how he lived. But one of the things he said about the church was this. He said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. He was owning back in the day that the Christians weren't living in to Galatians 3.28 and to all these different kinds of things. And I know everybody's heard the story about how Gandhi said the same thing. You know, I love Christ. I love your Christ. It's the Christians that I struggle with. We have a lot of deser deserved criticism. And I think part of the question that comes out of that for us at this stage is to ask us, where are we doing the same thing today? Where are we closing down the Holy Spirit's movement in our lives and in how the church is responding to different kinds of things. And just being open enough to say, lead me and guide me, show me, convict me, and mold me into the, to the church and to the people that you want us to have. I think when we start thinking about this, how we are called to recognize the dignity of all people and how we're to be a people of forgiveness. And I saw a story, I'm telling lots of stories today, but there, I saw a, a story that to me made this point and it was from uh, Vivian Malone, who you may not know the name, but she was the brave woman who was the first African-American to matriculate at the University of Alabama on June 11th of 1963. And the federal troops had to be there to help her go into the University of Alabama. And it brought out some VIPs to try to block her, including Governor Wallace. Flash forward from that day, she got in. He didn't stop her. 
and she graduated. But flash forward many, many years later, and Governor Wallace later repented from that and was sorry for what he'd done. And as he headed towards the end of his life and he knew he was dying, he not only went to, to make amends in a number of places, but he reached out to, her, to Vivian and said, would you meet with me? And they met. And when they met, he asked for her forgiveness, expressed his regret at what he had done. And she said, oh, I, I've long ago forgave you. And then years later, in the year 2003, she was in an interview where she was asked about that statement that she made, that long ago that I had forgiven you. And here's how she replied. She, submit, she said, this may sound weird. I'm a Christian, and I grew up in the church. And as I was taught that, just as I was taught that no other person was better than I, that we were all equal in the eyes of God, I was also taught that you forgive people no matter what. And that is why I had to do it. I didn't feel as if I had a choice. I think she nails it. She nails our, our source of dignity. She nails how we're to be a people of love and forgiveness. And she, she puts it right out there. And I think it's complicated today because it, this goes in all kinds of directions. It goes to raising, I mean, lowering barriers every part of life and loving people. And it's not only loving the wounds of the past and the hurts and the race issues, but it's also the other way, I think, as well. Um, and people big enough to know that, I think, recognize that. I saw recently where John Perkins, again, who's a, a famous writer in this space, who's an African-American, in his book called Dream With Me, Race, Love, and the Struggle We Must Win, he says this. He says, and this is where he grew up. He says, in New Hebron, Mississippi, I grew up around poor whites who felt they were better than blacks and expected us to move out of their way when they were walking down the street. They were oppressors. And common knowledge through the years was that in rural areas, poor whites sought to become sheriffs, cops, and guards in order to have some power over society. So we did not have a great relationship with them. To be honest, I had never given a second thought to poor whites. I still regarded them negatively as redneck trailer park trash. He goes on in his book to talk about how God convert, can, continues to convert him and grow him. And he ultimately um, finishes this part by saying sometimes now when he goes to a church and he sees, he talks about being at a church and watching people coming to the food bank at the church. He says this, sometimes when I visited the church, I would just hang back and watch the people come and go as they picked up food items. I always found the behavior of the white people quite curious. Their body language showed so much shame. One would almost think they were stealing food. I noted also that these white folks really didn't have a voice or any power to stand up for them. They too were victims exploited politically by those in power. Many times the man of the family would not even go inside to get the food. Rather, he would sit outside in the truck and send in his wife. I've gone from almost hating them when I was young and angry and they were bigoted and violent to genuinely loving them as brothers and sisters. I think about how many poor whites respond to me so positively when I speak today. Often I can see a spark in their eyes. I'm truly sorry that I've neglected the needs of these neighbors of mine and have not responded often enough to the spark. There are many different complicated categories of how this happens. The point is we have to, all of us, everybody, all the time, we have to stand up and proclaim the dignity of all people 
in God, they were all made in God's image. And I think part of what we do in here each week as we gather as the church is to get a reset and be reminded of this. To be reminded of all of this. And um, I, I saw a quote, I'm doing, as I said, I'm, I have lots of quotes today. Maybe it's because I want other people to speak some of this. But um, I saw a quote from Reese Witherspoon who's a Christian, and she's not only a Christian, she's an Episcopalian, so I gotta pay attention when she, when she says something. But she talked about the importance of this. Um, it, she was playing June Carter, if you saw the movie and, and the faith that's there, but she said this in an interview. She said, I was raised going to church every Sunday, and I go to church most Sundays with my kids. For me, where I'm at in my career, so many people want to put you in a place that you're not real and treat you like you're not real. For me, it's a great experience of grounding. And I stand next to people who have nothing and who have everything. And we all treat each other the same because we all are the same. It's just like a little weekly reminder. I want to end with one final thought. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Dallas's Holocaust and Humanities um, Museum. I went there a few years ago with my kids, and one of the things they really are good about emphasizing is the importance of being an upstander and not a bystander. And they, they make the point that sometimes just riding along and being silent is, is just not right, that you need to be an upstander. And I think the question for us on this is, when have we been silent when we need to stand up? When have we gotten things wrong? You know, I had somebody in here give me this book recently, The Church Cracked uh, Open by Stephanie Spellers, um, who's an African-American priest on the staff of the presiding bishop. One of the things that she wrote that caught me that, that I was thinking about us as Episcopalians and our own history, she says, I want to read just, again, just a couple sentences. She says, at the risk of sweeping generalization, in the, Methodist and in the Methodists and the Baptists were more willing to invest energy and resources in missionary ventures embracing outdoor revivals and bold ministry with whites and blacks, rich and poor. On the other end of the continuum, to varying degrees, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Mennonites, and Presbyterians preferred to welcome new people into their existing cultural enclaves if they welcome outside groups at all. This idea that may be part of our own reflection is what have we done in the past on this? And all these questions you can raise and talk about and think about this week. Have we carried the ball in this area the way we should? Lots of things for us to think and to pray about in all this. Um, and with that note, I, I'd offer you to, to join me in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and you are the one who bestows dignity on us. We're all made in your image. You call each of us who put on Christ into one family. There are no divisions to be amongst us as a family. We're to love and welcome all, to show the dignity of all. Lord, for the places where we have failed in that, forgive us. And Lord, ha help us to have the openness to be led by your spirit, to bring love into all the places where love needs to go to all the broken places where healing needs to happen, where all the places where maybe we've set and been okay with the way things are when we needed to be an upstander. Give us strength, give us grace, give us hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.